Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's focus is a playbook that helps innovators and entrepreneurs to harness new extreme ideas despite complex business barriers. This visual guide provides insight, practical solutions, and reusable canvases to help innovation managers, CEOs, chief innovation officers, and directors of innovation labs to develop breakthrough ideas. We welcome authors of the Radical Innovation Playbook, a practical guide for harnessing new, novel, or game-changing breakthroughs. Olga Koktshagina and Alan Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we start today's show, I have great news. We have a copy of this book. It's beautifully illustrated. It's such a valuable book. As I mentioned in the intro, great canvases, great checklists in there. That's a copy of the book. It's up for grabs. Just sign up for the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in with a chance to win. Guys, you open up the book by saying innovation remains a major concern for senior executives working in today's company. For instance, one study suggested innovation was the primary focus of 70% of company senior executives, and an earlier study indicated that executives expect their revenue to double every five years thanks to breakthrough innovations. Yet, the same survey confirmed almost 90% of them are unsatisfied with their own innovation efforts. What we see is this disalignment between the ambition uh, somehow to develop uh, radical uh, innovations and the expectations that senior executives uh, have towards that. And at the same time, the means that they put together to actually develop them. Uh, that's why uh, what the survey indicates is 90% of them are not satisfied because perhaps the effort, the processes, the organizational structures to actually develop these radical innovations are not properly uh, sought for uh, to, to consider them. It's compounded by this desire as a senior manager to, to, to make accurate decisions and to do the right thing all the time. Um, and what we know from innovation projects is they very rarely go exactly as you planned. <laughs> and and that, that phases senior executives entirely. And they establish a process or a system within their company and they assume that everything will go like clockwork. And if it doesn't go like clockwork, that's somehow a fault of theirs, of their decision making or of their staff. It's about this tension of decision making at, at a senior level. Yeah, and you mentioned that tension. You say there's a tension between the old and the new. Innovation is about making decisions and making decisions in the corporate context is always a huge challenge. It is always a huge challenge. And because we're making decisions about new things, we're never going to have all of the information that we'd really like to have at our fingertips in order to justify that decision. When we make decisions about operational activities, hopefully, unless we're a very new startup, we've got lots of experience about how to how to, to collect data and how to analyze in order to try to prompt our decisions in the right direction. But because an innovation is new, and when we talk about a radical innovation, it might be new to the company, but it might also be new to society or the world, then those decisions are, are much more fraught with uncertainty. Let's talk about that, because you said there about the radical innovation and the book is like that. So we've breakthrough radical, but most companies would be doing incremental innovation and sometimes think that's innovation, which it is. But it, but for us in this world of change, that's business as usual. It'd be great to get a definition of the different types of innovation so everybody's on the same page who's listened to today's show. Most of the companies are very, very good in developing incremental innovations, which is great. This is basically what we have to do to sustain the core activities of everyday business. So we do not neglect incremental innovation in our book, but we also want to shift the focus towards radical innovation in terms of preparing the future. So we do sustain the core, but we also need to extend it to the edge and then also prepare the future. And radical innovation in that perspective is so to basically help us identify these new capabilities that we have to develop in order to shift the competencies, develop the future for uh, that particular organization by exploring new markets, new technologies, new processes, and new operational structures as well. One of the constant things that comes up from this show and from any books in innovation is is tensions, dilemmas, that it's never a case of or. It's not this or that. It's this plus that or this 
both it's and not and or and it's really important that because you say there exists a dilemma in trying to balance tensions between efficiency of operation whilst also considering the effectiveness of operation so it's this tension between exploit the the company as it is today and explore what it could be tomorrow one of our good friends who who wrote the uh forward to the book john Bassett. he simplifies it with with two terms um incrementals about about doing better what we currently do and radicals about doing something different and to me that anchors it and so when we think about making the decisions and we think about a portfolio well obviously managers are going to be attracted to accepting incremental innovations because they're the ones that they know about and they're the ones that they know most about and they're the ones they can make clear and uncluttered decisions about and all we're trying to do is we're trying to bring forward an idea that these things are not mutually exclusive, but sometimes in order to do something different in your company, you might need to move to a slightly different structure. You might need to take a little bit of the control and place it somewhere else in order to let these ideas, these more radical ideas, flourish. I mentioned in the introduction the beautiful graphics and I've pulled one up here for our viewers on YouTube and for those of you who are listening to the show we're going to speak through it so don't worry we won't leave you behind here but the guys offer the innovation ambition matrix beautifully illustrated and Alan it'd be great if you take us through this perhaps as a to tee us up for the rest of the book. The innovation ambition matrix is important because, firstly, it's based on and, and authored by Magazine and Tuff. Their original work starts to try to categorize the ambitions of innovative organizations into three zones. It talks about how they focus their efforts on incremental innovation and how they then extend their efforts to try to develop new market opportunities. Um, and so the, the diagram itself has three zones. It talks about um, focusing your activities in the core. It talks about focusing your activities in adjacent markets. This is an expansion of your existing business. So typically it might be your existing product or your existing service, but you're taking it into a new marketplace, perhaps that haven't used or experienced your services or product at that time. And then it talks about a transformational market. A, a kind of a more of a I'm, I'm not going to use the term moonshot although I think I just have haven't I but because it's got all sorts of negative political connotations at the moment especially in the UK but um so so it's about focusing on this kind of transformational um aspiration and market which might be new products into uh customers whose markets for you currently don't exist and the really really important thing about this diagram which is why we've replicated the work of others in, in our book, is that they are able to identify that, that for 70% of the effort in the businesses in their, in their sample group, they focus on their core market. And for only 10% of the time, the companies that they've looked at focus on this transformational market. And in the adjacent market, which isn't such a big stretch, that's the, where the remaining 20% goes. And I think that's really important when we think about a portfolio of activity. If we've got 10% of our time, well, then how do we spend that 10% of our time? Well, if we divide that up, we're actually expecting to do roughly two thirds in our core market. And then the remainder of our effort gets distributed between the adjacent and the transformational. So that doesn't mean for a moment that you should put our book down because really our aspiration is only that it's 10% it's of, of companies' activities. Because what we can what we see is that those ten percent have the ability to yield big if they are successful. So we're going to come back to an example of a transformational breakthrough later on. We'll talk about that later on. But before we do, let's build further into the models that you present in the book. One of them is this brilliant navigation tool. I found this really helpful. Definitely. And what we try to do with uh, this navigation tool that uh, you can see on the screen is basically to help you position yourself in terms of what are your goals in developing this uh, innovation. Often we forget about that. We just put incremental or radical, but are, what are we, why are we doing that in the first place? Is it to sustain existing business, extend it, disrupt it, or develop entirely new radical uh, technologies? And if you're clear why you're doing that, where you're sitting in terms of, for instance, market renewal or creation or improvement, 
And then if you're clear where you're sitting in terms of product that we've seen uh, on the previous diagram or technology, there you can think, okay, if I'm, for instance, trying to disrupt existing business, so what are the exact organizational structures that I have in my company that can help me develop that? And do I have the right ones? So basically our navigation tool here tries to connect different organizational structures that you should be using, that we suggest you to be using uh, in relation to the goal that you have in terms of developing these new uh, innovative technologies or innovative products. And we're not trying to say that one size fits all, but the multi multiplicity of these organizational structures can actually help you see whether you have the right ones, whether you should consider developing new ones, and what are the purposes of your organization in terms of uh, de de delivering them and developing them. And the portfolio approach here can be that you can actually uh, use all of them at the same time in terms of improving something that exists already, core activity, adjacent activity, and also transformational activity that you can position in uh, different boxes as well. This matrix for me is kind of one of the main contributions of the book. It, it, it goes to the heart of the problem that we were trying to address, which is in our conversations with um, chief executives and managing directors and, and people at the, at the head of the innovation schemes in their, in, in their organizations. And Olga and I have done lots of practitioner work with, with those characters. They'd often heard of another way of doing things. They'd heard rhetoric, they'd been to events, they'd heard presentations about a skunk works model is the way to go for a radical innovation. And then someone else would say, no, 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 you, you should think about a joint venture with, with one of your competitors. And, and then someone else would chip in and say, it has to be done in-house. And it was that confusion around which model should I select? And as Olga's quite nicely pointed out, there is no right or wrong answer in here. But what we're trying to do is steer you toward being able to make a decision that's right for your organization by articulating these different options and referencing the different options against the types of innovation you're thinking of, whether it's it's radical technological-led innovation, whether it's a disruption in an existing market, or whether it's just an extension, I say just, but these are quite challenging, it's just an extension to your existing business. So guys, I, th I thought it would be really interesting using your model, because as you said, Alan, it's core element of the book. So why don't we use that to give some examples and give explanations of what each of these boxes represent? It'd be great to start maybe with sustaining existing business. This one, for me, was all about a project I did with with a, an energy company, EDF Energy, and and they had established an, an innovation department in house, and they were working across their different business functions. And when I became involved, it was all about working in their in their business to business sales teams, and it was about trying to get their business to business sales teams to come up with new products that would be attractive. Bearing in mind that they were selling energy in blocks of half a day. They were, you know, they were recontacting customers every two or three days to change the tariffs. These were these were major um, electricity users, and they could make significant savings by shifting from one tariff to another, even you know at the frequency of half a day, as I've said. Um, and they were looking for a way to extend these offerings to their customers, and their innovation lab was was a typical innovation lab. Uh, they developed a, a space. They developed some um, cultural cues. They'd developed um, a, a standard process. Um, they had a lovely online voting form um, and a platform. And you put your ideas up and your peers voted on your ideas. And the ones that had the most merit floated to the top. And, and they were the ones that were implemented. And it was working exceptionally well for EDF um, until they started to try to stretch and to address some of the challenges that EDF were offering in their, were, were experiencing in their business. And they suddenly discovered that, that that technique wasn't stretching them enough. So the ideas that were coming were, were good ideas. They were implementable ideas. They were solid propositions, but they lacked a flair and they lacked a focus on the big challenge. Um, and, and so we worked with them subsequently to, to, to move around this matrix. But But that would be the example that perhaps explain to me that the in-house in innovation lab approach. 
So next, Alan, one of my favorites was the origin of Skunk Works. So I'd love you to take us through this element of the box. Let's anchor this this one in the example that everyone perhaps is most familiar with. Um, and it's the development of, of the, um, the high-speed uh, jet engine planes that came from Lockheed Martin in the US just after the Second World War. Um, they, they were worried that, 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 that the competitors um, were developing or other countries were developing um, very, very fast um, warplanes. And so they decided to take a team of specialists and, and move them physically outside of the factory, outside of the research and design team, and give them a mandate, which was a very, very challenging mandate. And the story goes, and it's a much debated story, but the reason why it's called a skunk works is, is that the land that they procured was on the edge of the town. And, and, and it was very much about kind of bricolage is, is a word we use now, but it was very much about make do and mend kind of approach to innovation. They had a really hard challenge. They had equipment in a tent. It was an, it was an ex-fairground tent, circus tent. And the problem was that the land was adjacent to um, a factory which produced skunk oil. Um, skunk oil um, w- was a popular product, but as a result of the processing, it created an unpleasant smell. <laughs> and the smell would drift through the production facility, at the, the research and design facility in the tent. And, and the workforce would go home at the end of the day and they would smell of this awful smell. And, and that's how the name supposedly has been attributed to this style of development facility. So it's typically geographically outside of the business. It may have um, an extended um, uh, governance structure. So it's outside of the normal operating procedures. It's outside of the normal investment regimes. It has some autonomy. It's not a separate company more often than not it sits within the the corporate umbrella but it has the autonomy to to do experimentation to to talk to customers to find out what they they need and to try to develop radical ideas quickly i love this alan i i pulled a quote from this because i loved how you articulated this you said to sidestep the corporate immune response a common trend seen in high profile M&E organizations is to undertake their breakthroughs in isolation and often in secrecy being left to mature outside of the influence of existing markets hidden from existing technology trajectories or shielded from existing customers who might not be ready or equipped to adopt these radical offerings and then this leads us to the decision, like you mentioned, to skunk or not to skunk. Is in-house best when it comes to new novel breakthrough innovations? And in the book, you outline a menu for processes and organizational structures. And that's what we're going through today. But I loved how you articulated that because that absolutely nails it. And there's a lot of debate over this as well. Should should you skunk? Because when you bring people away to a skunk works like that, often it becomes this us against them kind of mentality. I'd love your take on this. I think it's really important to remember that when you develop something outside of your business, unless you intend to supply it, unless you intend to warranty it, unless you intend to maintain it outside of your business, it has to come back on to the umbrella at some point. And I think that's where some of the, the skunk works models fall down. You do the development away from the company. You do the development away from the technology trajectory. You come up with something quite innovative and novel, but the operations team have to deliver it. I remember a conversation sitting with Vodafone many, many years ago, and the tension in the room was electric because the sales team had been on an away day and they'd come up with a fantastic new corporate data package that they'd gone about marketing the fundamental flaw in their plan was that the infrastructure on the ground, the radio networks and the masts and the, and the infrastructure in, 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 the, in the technical delivery teams was physically incapable of delivering that package. And so the operations team were shouting, it's great, well done, you've sold it. There's no way on earth we can provide that level of service to our customers. And I think that's really important to remember that what you develop in secrecy, what you develop away from the organization ha- if it's going to be delivered by the operations team, if it's going to be warranted, if it's going to be maintained, you have to bring it in and integrate it. I thought about this because often when people work in innovation and come up with the ideas, there's a there's a difficulty in letting it go and handing it over to the organization because oftentimes you don't get any credit for it. And 
that's one of the real mental difficulties with working in a lab or working as a, a corporate innovator or an entrepreneur is that you need to hand over the credit but you need somebody as you say providing air cover but also who knows that you did it so that's real leadership i think in innovation i'd love your opinion on this because this for me working in innovation was a big difficulty as well and i i freely admit it i had difficulty handing over the credit because credit was hard to come by when a lot of your experiments didn't work or didn't land or weren't integrated by the organization i think what what is important here uh, and we often talk about four types of uncertainties technology market resources and organizational uncertainty and in most of the innovative explorations we actually forget about resource and uh, organizational uncertainties and uh, i think what you are uh, pointing uh, on that is basically we need to secure and we need to actually think about this future lending, whether it's within the company or outside, and actually try to deal and identify this organizational uncertainty since the beginning. Like, for instance, if you are planning to bring this idea back into the company, so who will be these internal sponsors that you should be onboarding at some stage and how? So you need to be trying to identify these uh, boundaries between the outside and inside, especially if you're in a skunk work, and try to kind of manage this uh, lending zone for the future. Or, for instance, if you're trying to go with the company builder, then it's a totally different story. So you, don't, you do not need to somehow use the resources of the company in terms of competencies, but just to secure maybe the funding for your uh, innovation. And as uh, corporate innovators, we do need to, to think uh, about that and actually uh, look into what are the possible future scenarios uh, for uh, different types of innovations that we're developing. That, that one for me was a difficult one. Re reading your work, I, it brought it all back. And, you know, I read once that it's like, okay, you've done great, kid. The adults got it from here. That's how it feels sometimes that it's like the organization will take it from here. You don't know what to do with that. You don't know how to financially plan it. And I used to think that was wrong, but it's actually right. And what your book was really helpful for was to go, don't skip steps here, because if you skip a step, it's going to come back and bite you in the ass later on. So I love that. But let, let's keep going through the four boxes. So next up, Olga, perhaps you'll bring us through the company builder or the external accelerator, and then we'll talk about spin out and joint ventures. Perhaps we need to define what is a company builder in the first place. So imagine uh, now we have so many corporate accelerators, innovation studios, and company builders is one particular way of doing that where uh, you basically identify some ideas within the company, but then you can partner with uh, an external entity, which will actually take the responsibility with you as uh, a company who invented the idea uh, to bring this idea into the market. So they're not just taking uh, your entrepreneurs for six months and then uh, test the idea, but they're actually taking the responsibility to develop and test it. And they are supposed to actually create a viable product out of that, which makes it uh, much more uh, engaging. And actually, they do a proper uh, risk assessment before taking on board these kind of ideas. And external accelerators, are, of course, a more common way of doing that. An example of that, we did work with a French uh, transportation company that looked into exploring uh, different uh, solutions in terms of future uh, of mobility a few years ago. And one of the ideas that came after uh, a series of innovative uh, workshops within the company is actually around the microtransit. They did realize that they can't, because of the corporate immunity that Alan uh, was mentioning before, they can't actually develop it internally within uh, the main uh, structure of the company in France. And they decided to accelerate it externally uh, in UK by launching a micro bus a transit service in Bristol. And uh, the service that was initially launched for learning was planned for six months and they did run it for a few years. And the idea was basically to use an app and have a flexible routing where you could book a bus anywhere and actually go anywhere by avoiding traffic. So the service was quite popular. And even if it was shut last year, uh, actually, the learnings were quite positive in terms of the company did learn a lot in terms of running uh, a business of uh, flexible routing and microtransiting uh, around uh, Bristol. And they're actually reusing this uh, learning quite well in their other ideas and solutions being developed currently. Maybe you'll take us through spin out joint venture then as well. 
definitely when we look into disrupting existing businesses, I think the, the top right uh, figure is actually one of the most challenging because we do look into developing new propositions, new solutions for new markets. So we are approaching here this 5% or even 1% of uh, ideas that companies uh, might look into uh, developing. And the example that, that comes into my mind from our book is actually uh, in the semiconductor industry. So I, I did work for STMicroelectronics for a few years as an innovation specialist. As part of their business innovation process, they've developed a few ideas. And one of them was uh, just imagine your phone uh, and imagine you today you can touch your phone uh, on the screen and you can feel some vibrations and you can actually send some things. But now imagine you can actually... Uh, go um, to the e-commerce uh, website uh, and you can actually feel the sense of jeans or cotton by just moving your fingers. Or imagine in, in the future you can actually look into basically medical diagnostics by, by using your phone, which actually can change the shape and the form on the screen. So they did think about developing these kind of markets by using new technology based on piezoelectric elements that I, I won't describe it in detail. So we're looking into new, uh, entirely new technology that is slightly outside of the company's expertise. And we're looking into a completely new set of markets that they're going to explore. So double uncertainty to some extent. So what they've done in there is basically uh, they started initially uh, to develop the uh, idea internally, but they quickly realized that they do not have enough uh, competencies to do it and they need to partner with companies outside. So they've created a spin out out of that, which exists still, and they uh, raised quite some money with Daimler uh, last year uh, to be present in the automotive industry. And basically, uh, they did manage in a few years to actually develop a prototype, which is used now in automotive, but also in other uh, markets as well. And you can find that example in the book in detail. I thought at a top level, we'd add another lens here, another layer, if you will, to the to the mental models that we've discussed so far, because you talk about phases of the innovation journey. And you move through discovery where your ideas might secure minimal investment to exploration, where you begin to flesh out the idea with potential development plans before setting up the key resources and activities by the next stage, which is preparing for takeoff. And then that that all leads eventually to a successful landing. And I love those four steps you talk about discovery, exploration, preparing for takeoff, which many of us skip and then landing as well. So I'd love if you take through, us through that. Alan, perhaps you'd open. We're very mindful that it isn't linear. The world, the process that we use in innovation isn't linear. And the whole idea of the book is written so you can hop backwards and forwards. You can find yourself in the exploration phase and realize you haven't got enough information. And maybe you have to jump back into discovery and look at a slightly different alternative or a pivot on your existing idea. But we have to have something to organize ourselves with in terms of a logical sequence. So we've picked those, those four phases. Um, I think what's also important to appreciate is, is that in, in a heavily governed stage gate model where there are decision gates and each activity relates to a yes or no decision at decision gates, um, it's quite often difficult if there are individual characters coming in from different departments to understand the whole process. And so what we've tried to do is capture the whole thing in the book to get you to a point where you can prepare your innovation for launch. And then you can also um, understand what it will be like and the sorts of competencies and skills you'll need to explore and exploit when you bring your innovation to land. Olga, perhaps you want to add another layer or another lens on top of that. I think what is uh, important as well to stress, the way we designed the book is to have in mind both uh, innovators within the company, but also managers and help them uh, go through all these phases uh, from the perspective of an innovator. And most of the process books somehow are actually looking into the ideator or entrepreneur perspective. But also we are uh, by adding the additional layer of uh, having this discussion on organizational structures. We actually wanted to help the innovation managers as well to see, okay, if I have several potential structures that I can use uh, and 
if I look into my uh, portfolio of innovative ideas that I'm managing currently, so how to structure my portfolio? How do I make sure, for instance, that within uh, the portfolio of projects that we're currently developing, we have something in the discovery zone, something in the exploration, something in the acceleration, something in preparing takeoff uh, and landing to actually make yourself more comfortable with the outcomes of your innovation departments actually helping the company to innovate. And why I think it's, it's important is because uh, we do see lots of innovative departments being created with huge budgets. And then uh, several years later, they completely disappear because they can't actually structure uh, the portfolios around them to make sure that they have ideas of different stages quick wins, transformational core ideas adjacent all together where, can, where we can create this cross uh, learning between ideas and across different phases. And I think uh, we try to capture uh, it in this book and we hope that people can use that in the future. And just to add, I, I hope that managers who read the book will see that as you have a portfolio and some of your projects are in exploration, others are in discovery, others are in preparation, they can, they can be at different stages, but they can also be in different structural vehicles. Um, and you shouldn't be scared of that. If you have a couple of things that require, you know, take those forwards with a skunk works, move them outside of the corporate vision and, and operations. Um, and then others can be done entirely in-house and it's, and it's kind of okay to have that kind of sawtooth profile of hopping in and out. I think the other thing um, that's become evident to me in using the book um, is that whilst we conceived it originally um, with a focus towards uh, you know, innovation managers, um, managing directors, entrepreneurs, um, it's actually a really, really useful teaching and coaching guide. <laughs> and I've been deploying it now across our MBA students and across our undergraduate students. And they, they fully get the benefit of being able to scribble on and to work on the canvases and to move their ideas along. I think perhaps some of the structural formation uh, the options around which structures to select is is perhaps a little lost on them, but but I think when they get into their organisations and their careers, hopefully that will ping back to these decisions about moving from from one structure, selecting a different structure if appropriate. Let, let's talk about the characters involved because you know sometimes I think of it as a screenplay, and these are the characters because you have different names for characters as well, like entrepreneur, uh, the the CEO, like the CEO or or the leaders play in such an important role you mentioned about the the given the air cover for the innovators within organizations perhaps we'll cover a couple of them because i think that's really interesting for people to know kind of going oh that's what i am because oftentimes they don't have the title of the job they're doing i think the titles are perhaps important but it's more uh how do we help people to actually define their own roles on what they would like to play and how they would like to to develop their own ideas for me for instance, uh, being innovative or having an idea. I mean, you don't need to be labeled specifically an entrepreneur or entrepreneur or being an innovation residency to actually identify something which perhaps is a pain point or a gap that you can address, actually being able to develop that. So that can happen across all the levels. Uh, and you can actually start exploring without even having the organizational structures in place to do that. I mean, you you might start to, to have problems to mature these ideas and secure resources later on, but anyone uh, can uh, try to use these canvases or uh, anything similar to actually identify ideas, start to mature them, test them, uh, learn from them, and actually create uh, some ideas internally or even externally later on. I thought about this before that often the titles like entrepreneur in residence or entrepreneur or even other roles like chief data officer, when we don't know them, say the legacy organization, when we don't know what they mean, those jobs, we are often approach those people with apprehension and we reject them. And it's not because of the person and they're not good people or anything. It's like because we have a certain amount of fear there. So the fear equals resistance and we push them away. And oftentimes that's it's a very difficult role for people within organizations. And many of the, our listeners are those people and they often feel rejected or isolated in the organizations they work for. And I love your opinion on this, guys, because this I think this is such an important element. I think that anything that you don't understand in your everyday business landscape can initially appear threatening. So when they when an organization will implement a new department which is going to lead the innovation charge, obviously they 
they publicize that across the organization but but really that organ that that independent department's job is to get in amongst everybody and harvest their ideas and and what we've seen over the last 10 years is an expectation from multinationals an expectation from large organizations that they'll go away from having an R&D department and and what they're asking their staff to become is internal entrepreneurs or the word we use is entrepreneurs horrible word but but internal entrepreneurs and they want them to have new and emergent ideas about products and services and if you're in that position where you've been asked to suddenly become um good at your day job obviously but also come up with these new products and services or ideas for your business that can feel equally as intimidating because then you start to meet these new people the chief technology officer the chief innovation officer and you're trying to articulate or you're trying to pitch your vision for what this new product and service could be and it and it feels like a very hostile environment and you know we've we haven't improved that that um those we haven't improved that with television programs like dragons den where 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 you have to pitch your ideas and and so what we're seeing is is corporates who are trying to stimulate their employees to become entrepreneurial and then their employees are hesitating because they're not too sure what pathway they should follow how they should articulate their ideas and how they might bring them forward so again that's a little bit of the focus area of our book is to to give those nascent entrepreneurs some confidence to move forwards with their ideas i found that really really powerful and so important because knowledge is is power and and i think knowledge negates fear as well so when people understand it even at the highest level that they have less fear of it and they'll be more welcoming and it's one of the one of the real reasons i do this show is to get knowledge out there about this because if we do it and we explain it as well as you do in this book it can reduce that fear and allow innovation to flourish olga what's your opinion on what you've seen over the last uh, decade yeah actually while listening to to both of you i had um two ideas that came into my mind first um and i always I'll often share it with uh, my students or even in my corporate work is try to look at any organization that you see and try to understand where the innovation sits within that particular organization like do they have uh the CIO so do they have innovation labs and where they are positioned within the company do they have any strategic importance are they close to top 60 of the company uh strategic board or are they actually sitting within the R&D structure support function do they have a team or not that will tell you a lot in terms of uh how in innovation is positioned understood and what the company is actually doing in terms of innovation like does it sit within the R&D department or sometimes you can see an innovation function within the marketing which already shows you uh, quite a lot in terms of focus and uh, the ambition and that's quite interesting to understand that first and then second and i think uh, we we talk here about the fear and uh people not being perhaps motivated to actually uh um take part in the in any type of innovation activities or innovation labs and i think partially it is because yes there are these intimidating cios who have appeared a few years ago now perhaps cdios even more uh but initially i think most of the companies just named these people without giving them lots of support and lots of uh resources to actually launch these initiatives and many companies i've seen uh, at least in europe they actually started these uh, innovation labs where people were supposed to propose the ideas on top of their day-to-day job so yes they had great ideas they went to this incubation processes they've developed them they've tested them on top of what they do every day and of course that created lots of frustrations because outcomes were not really clear even for innovation innovative directors the outcomes were not really clear or where we are going with all of that and why am i saying all of that is basically if we do uh have an ambition to innovate within the company we do need to have resources and we do need to create this culture uh, to basically to nurture that culture around innovation and help people understand why we're doing it in the first place uh what is in in, in that uh for them uh, as well and how they can actually leverage that for uh, their own careers in the first place it's such an important point you made there olga that oftentimes hiring 
somebody in innovation is the innovation policy. <laughs> That's it. They hire them and then they leave them to go to pasture and try and figure it out with no support, no finance and low leadership. And that person just fizzles out and dies after lots of lots of frustration within the organization. And you see that time and time again. And it's such a it's such a sad thing to see because they then feel maybe they failed and actually the organization actually failed them because they didn't have the structures in place, which is why I find your book so important. But I thought a great way to perhaps close today's show is is the start. And by the start, I mean, is we've gone through I, I thought of the idea of a computer game and you've gone through all the levels you talk about in the game, you've got to a product. But you say here, when you've made it past all the steps so far, often the hardest part for organizations is to know what to do when the ideas have potential. We've seen it in many uh, different uh, cases as well on basically having the perfect innovation process, having the outcomes, um, even having specific KPIs in terms of how many ideas we would like to have at the end and how many we would like to accelerate. But in many cases, we have not, well, I haven't seen um, clear vision of how we're going to incorporate these ideas then within the company. What happens if this transformational radical idea succeeds? I mean, perhaps it threatens actually the real existence of the company for now. So how do we shift our competencies? Do we actually create another company or do we incorporate it within? I think this kind of reflections do not happen early enough uh, during the process of uh, uh, innovative exploration or development. And that's what we are trying to bring attention to. Think about why you're doing it in the first place. What's the ambition behind that? And try to connect it, of course, to the resources, the organization in place. And we've talked about that today, uh, people uh, and culture, and try to see, okay, if I'm doing that, it's not just to, to basically show that our company is innovative and uh, put it in the annual reports, but we're actually investing in that. So we need to prepare the next step. And we need to prepare the resources, which will be even bigger to basically scale these ideas uh, later on and introduce them to the market, of course. It was very valuable for me. I, I'd be very much of a, a fire aim ready type person with innovation. And this made me think about that. They go, you need some planning there because what, what if you are successful and what if you get to the next step? Because you're so busy trying to rush to market or rush to profitability that oftentimes you skip steps. And I think that's an important point. Alan, maybe you'd step in here because I think many innovations are killed because the legacy organization tries to force metrics from a, an existing product onto one that hasn't even hit the market yet, and they kill it with unrealistic expectations. So I think it's important to go back to some of the early statements we made right at the outset of the book, which is that the, the more radical innovations, they have the potential to deliver big but they quite often take a lot longer to mature to get to that level of sales than the more incremental ones and so as you've just said it creates an an, an expectation that you've got the product now so you just have to get it into the market and it'll lock and as it locks it will create a, a high level of revenue and everything will be great and and what happens with the radical projects products is is sometimes they they need to have a shift in the technological regime. They need to have a shift in fashion. They need to have a shift in something else that enables them to ex extend into these markets. And that takes time. And so really this preparation for landing phase is important with radical innovations, perhaps more so than with incremental innovations. Because as you say, they can get killed off if in the first six months they haven't sold as many as the, the managing director was expecting to sell. But we need to be mindful that they're going to take a little bit longer because they, they quite often challenge the user. They quite often challenge the expectations of the market. They, they quite often challenge the business itself in terms of how they're going to warranty and, and develop spares and, and support it. And so this phase can be a long and torturous one, equally as torturous as the phase is to get to this product launch. Yeah, and you gave the example here of Intel and Andy Grove. And now we have it, these telecommunication services all over the planet, but they developed it 25 years before they became popular. It's gone, it's gone. Um, in, in, it's, it's everyone is connecting on this technology at the moment. Um, I mean, at the university I work in, we, we were working on this technology 
15, 18 years ago and developing real-time data packet um, video conferencing systems when, when people really didn't know that that's what they needed. And others around the world have, uh, were purchasing that intellectual property with a vision that we would be con as connected as we are today. And, and yet it's taken a pandemic to upskill all of the users, to, to create all of the investment requirements in, in our organizations, to get our broadband up to speed and to buy us all headsets and, and to allow us to work from home. Um, without those developments in terms of the radical technologies, in terms of the radical products, we wouldn't have very quickly scaled this as we have now to resolve the issues we've been suffering from for the last, uh, well, it's coming up for 12 months, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, and, and I think it's, that's important to realize that, 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 that route from having something that kind of works and, and is ready to go to the market and it locking in and becoming enormously well used can take quite a long time for, for more radical innovations. What happened really, it's like a game of musical chairs that whoever, whoever had the chair ready when the pandemic hit was in luck. So we saw lots of organizations who were ready. But, but I wanted to say, what if you have d discovered a product? And do you have a library of sorts that you can put it on the shelf and kind of go, okay, when the technology catches up, perhaps understanding patterns like Moore's law, for example, when the technology catches up, we're going to be ready. Have you seen any examples of that? I think there are very, very good um, uh, kind of structures to help us to go for discovery, where you basically uh, try to connect the problem and the need and try to see whether you're actually thinking about the solution that addresses the specific problem. Then uh, we have uh, our exploration phase where you basically verify solution market fit to say, okay, I did identify the need first and I do hope that my solution addresses that need. But then in the second phase, you actually verify, okay, so we're actually sure that our solution is the one that addresses that need. So people do realize that and they're ready to buy it. So this is your end of uh, somehow the exploration that we're doing in here. But then in order to achieve the scaling phase, all the other factors somehow has to be aligned as well. Is basically uh, you have to have you have to be somehow fortunate to be uh, in the right position, as you were saying, musical chairs, uh, like where you Zoom or someone else, what actually made you uh, closer to, to scale your idea. And there, um, well, I do not have any specific uh, recipes for that. Uh, apart from learning, uh, looking into the evidence on the market and trying to see and that are trying to actually have uh, real KPIs that you can follow to see what's happening with your company every day, kind of evidence-based approach. But yeah, Alan, maybe you have some thoughts. I think one of the things that I've learned with the radical innovations um, is that um, we're kind of led to believe that first to market is essential. And, and we're not prepared and our company's not prepared to sit and watch and wait when they have something that's oven ready, shall we say. But what we know about the most, uh, what, we know, what we know from our research about radical innovations is quite often they, they can be the 10th, 15th, 20th, 40th, 60th thing in the market, but they have a uniqueness that suddenly unlocks the market. And I think Apple is an example that everyone's very familiar with, but really has exploited that very, very well. They've not rushed to be the first um, music player, MP3 music <laughs> player, um, you know, and, and they've sat back and they've, they've looked at what really makes people engage with the device. And they've developed a device that, that, that is, is both fashionable and, and intuitive. I think when you've taken this long, to go through the phases and you get to prepare to launch, you shouldn't imagine that the clock is really, really running down now because it's taken you this long. You, you have to have the confidence of your original ideas, which is why in our book, we encourage you to fill out and collect information and data that, that if you need to hold and you need to wait for a change before you push your product, then, then probably that's okay because that's the right thing to do at that time. Beautiful. I think with incremental innovations, definitely there's the tendency we need to get 2.1. And then when we've got 2.1, we have 2.2.1. And we then, then we need three because our competitors have got a three in the marketplace. And, and that's, that has influenced the way that we behave with the launching our more radical things. Um, you know, it, it, it was interesting to, for me to reflect on the fact that we were all 
Skyping um, before the pandemic. I don't know about you, but that's a platform that seems to have disappeared off of my PC, let alone my repertoire of communication devices. And and the two dominant ones fighting it out are are Teams and 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 Zoom. And I think that's interesting in itself, because we had one that I think most of us in the academic world, if 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 not around the world, were using on a daily basis. And suddenly we've got new offerings that we've hopped to. I thought of that concept of the second mouse gets the cheese when you were saying that. But uh, it's customary for me to let the guests close the show, guys. So uh, Olga, ladies first with you. So if you could let us know where people can find you, where you are, because Olga and Alan are in totally different parts of the world. That's why we're doing the show at this time in the morning. So perhaps, Olga, your message to our audience, what would be your one message if you could have one message to the world and the driver behind the passion that you put into your work what would that be and where can people find you perhaps first as you are saying we are in different parts uh, of the world so i am currently uh, based uh, in australia in melbourne um, uh, working for uh, royal melbourne institute of technology and you can find me uh, on different social media platforms like linkedin or twitter or even drop me an email and i'm happy to chat uh, with you all um in terms of the message uh, I think when we look into uh, innovation, uh, for me, it's not a luxury anymore. So somehow it is more of uh, a necessity. I mean, we all uh, are seeing all different changes around us. The world has changed so much since 2020, right? Lots of uncertainties, lots of movements. Even the way we work is completely uh, different. We just talked about Zoom and MS Teams and remote work. Uh, to some extent. So we do have to shift our practices. We do have to uh, change our way of working, organizing, communicating. And that creates lots of possibilities to to innovate and to create these new dynamic capabilities around whatever uh, we do. So I think it is important to innovate and it is important to, uh, to actually systematically learn and observe things around you and you'll definitely be able to shift your practices and prepare your organization or yourself uh, for the future of work. Alan, before I hand over to you, I just want to remind our audience, I have a copy of this beautifully illustrated book, brilliantly written book. You did a great guys uh, job, guys. Just sign up for the Innovation Show.io newsletter and you'll be in with a chance to win. Alan, how about you? What's your closing message? I'm going to take us down to a silly analogy, just just for fun. Um, I was watching. Uh, I was watching some. Uh, I was watching some working horses, um, with my children, and I was wrestling with something in a paper I was writing. And I decided, if innovation and an innovation officer was going to be a horse, they wouldn't be a show jumper or a racehorse. They'd be a shire horse. So, so my experience of corporate innovation is, is it's hard work. It requires a lot of effort and, and you need to be strong and you need to be um, focused and you need to carry on when everyone around you is kind of given up and thrown in the towel. And that's how these radical innovations really lock into the marketplace. And, and sometimes that's how people assume that they can only be done by entrepreneurs, that they can only be done outside of the organization. Uh, because they're, they can be so so long and torturous journeys to market. Uh, where will you find me then? You'll find me um, at the University of Exeter in the UK, um, and you'll find me through the International Society of Professional Innovation Managers. Um, Olga and I met at this uh, fantastic society. We do a lot of work with that uh, organisation, and we can't wait to uh, get back to our fantastic uh, summer uh 700 seater conferences where we can meet up with the community of uh entrepreneurs of corporate innovation officers of of academics like uh, ourselves who who love this kind of topic of of innovation management authors of the radical innovation playbook a practical guide for harnessing new novel or game-changing breakthroughs olga kokshagina and alan alexander thank you for joining us thank you thank you